The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it's getting towards the end of the year now, so it's that time where we start to look back at some of the trends in 2018, and clearly one of the trends that emerged from this year was the growing frustration that appears to be taking hold in many parts of Africa with the China-Africa relationship as a whole. Now, it came to really to the fore after the FOCAC summit, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Beijing, when a lot of people were expecting, including me as well, that when China announced the big number, $60 billion of financial support in its aid package and uh, its loan package, that there would be the usual fanfare. And in turn, it really turned out that people weren't that thrilled because this, if anything, is the year of the loan. But I'm also going to add one other caveat to that. This is the year where I think the relationship turned in many ways, at least in the public perception of it. And we're seeing evidence of this more in Kenya and certainly in Zambia, but really in Kenya in a very fascinating way. And there was an interesting event, Kobus, this week that I'd like to get your take on. Three employees of the China Roads and Bridges Corporation were arrested by Kenyan authorities on corruption charges. And in so many ways, that has given validity to the suspicions that something is not right in this relationship. Now, we need to be fair here. Uh, They have not gone before a magistrate yet. They have been charged, but we don't know if they're innocence or their guilt. But boy, it certainly doesn't look good right now. And it's yet another marker on a, a growing list of indiscretions and, and how should we say this, just of, of negative press for the Chinese and really of, of, and if it's in fact true, of things that are not right with this relationship. I think the yes, the the, the corruption um, incident and the the arrest is is really important, among other reasons because it's not only the three um, Chinese officials who were arrested, but also four Kenyan officials. So it strengthens a, a narrative I think that we've seen in Africa a lot, where the the idea is that it's not only that China is um, you know kind of a, an overweening and perhaps kind of sinister influence in Africa, but that it is they're in cahoots with whatever incumbent government is is in power at that moment. So, you know, it it, it plays on uh, the weak link between African populations and African governments, more than simply the link between China and Africa. Um, so I think, you know, there the, that is really important. It also, the, the fact that, that Chinese people were arrested and Chinese, like, you know, employees of a, of a massive state-owned corporation were arrested, I think is also really notable. Um, because there were cases in Africa before, for example, um, you know, in, in, a, in a very slowly unfolding corruption case in, in South Africa, you know, where where there was indications that Chinese companies were pulled into local corruption um, and that some of the deals were, were corrupt. But to actually have Chinese company representatives arrested, I think, is is a big deal. 
And what's so powerful about this particular case is that it fits so snugly into the narrative, the worst suspicions that people have about the Chinese in Africa, that they, as you pointed out, that they're fueling corruption, that they are a negative influence, and that really at the end of the day, the, end of the, day, the SGR really isn't a good deal for, for Kenyans, in part because of the lack of transparency that exists in so many of the relationships, and this is the proof. What we're going to talk about today is to really test to see whether or not that is true. And so I'm thrilled to have back on the show Ismail Hanahashe, who is an independent journalist based out of London. If you've been a longtime listener of the program, you will know that he's an old friend of the show. Uh, earlier this year, Ismail was on the program to talk about his reporting that he did from Senegal and the Confucius Institutes. And Ismail was recently in Kenya, where he really he wrote an opinion article for the national newspaper out of the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi. And the title of that is China in Africa, an increasingly uneasy marriage of interests. A very good afternoon, Ismail, and welcome back to the show from London. Thank you so much, Eric. So here we are at the end of the year, an uneasy marriage of interests. I'd like to read a quote from your article that I think in so many ways sets the tone for where you think the temperature of this relationship is right now. It's in fact the last article in your piece. Many African leaders, you write, are clearly happy to be wooed by China, but the past few months have shown that the continent's vibrant and vocal civil societies will not be forced into a marriage that they don't want. If Africa is to achieve an equitable relationship with its latest benefactor, its best hope lies in the desire of its people to finally shape their own destiny. That's some pretty powerful stuff, and basically you're saying that the relationship has in fact reached a turning point. So why don't you give us a little bit more on what you found during your reporting trip in Nairobi for your article? Well, uh, Eric, it's not just in Nairobi. I've recently been in Ethiopia, I've been in Gambia, I've been in Senegal, I've been in Morocco, I've been in Somaliland. And traveling across Africa, um, generally, I've obviously in recent years uh, noticed that China's uh, role has increasingly become more powerful. It's continent-wide, it's not situated in just the east or the south or the north of the continent. But what I noticed recently, uh, being in Kenya, in Nairobi, is that there is this growing disquiet around China's role. And that point that I make at the very end of that article uh, for the national is to say when it came to the relationship between China and Africa often the one part of that relationship that was often overlooked was the civil society. Chinese uh, um, authorities, the state companies, um, Chinese banks, uh, development banks, etc. They all often dealt through the state structures at the elite level, often with, um, say, development banks inside Af African countries or with African presidents at the African Union level. Often, though, the continents often very vibrant and vocal civil societies have often been left out of the equation. And what we've seen this year, I think, as you said at the top of the program, is an important turning point. And I think Copus was mentioning this too. This year does feel like an important turning point in that finally the relationship between China and Africa is coming under the spotlight in many African countries, none more so than Kenya. And 
What's happening is that civil society actors are beginning to question whether their country should have such close relationships with China. For example, in Kenya, which has a very vibrant, um, dynamic civil society, this has come from various quarters. For example, you've had environmentalists that have been very upset that the SGR, the railway connecting uh, Nairobi, Kenya's uh, uh, capital with its main port at Mombasa was is was is to go through a a national park which is home to many of Kenya's famous kind of wildlife. So you've seen that uh, on one respect, you've seen criticism coming from uh, Kenyan politicians. Um, you've seen criticism and headlines appear across uh, Kenya's fairly open and uh, diverse media. So. In the sense in Kenya has been that this tension has been growing because, in, I think, in a sense, because the China relationship not only in Kenya but across many African countries has become so significant, it's become so important. And those kind of relationships, those deals, those loans, those investment projects have now began to see the, um, the light of day. One, I think another reason why Kenya is, is such an important country in, in, um, in this particular conversation is that I think it's been also uncommonly uh, frank about about the, the issues in the relationship also at a leadership level. So obviously civil society is, is really important in Africa and it's vibrant in, in many African countries. But civil society is also frequently you know, ignored by African leaders. Um, mm -hmm. But in this case, in the Kenyan case, we also saw um, President Uhuru Kenyatta actually saying that the, the China-Africa, um, particularly the China-Kenya trade relationship is, is skewed. Um, and he not, didn't only say it, he said it at, in his speech at, at a massive kind of uh, import-export fair that was held in Shanghai. Um, and then also Kenya and China almost ran into a trade war recently. Um, could you unpack a little bit what happened with that incident and, and why do you think Kenya is, is particularly kind of central to, to all of these conversations? Right, Kobus. Well, I mean, this is the start of my piece and this is what I observed as soon as I got to Nairobi. There was all this disquiet that was going on, talking to journalists, talking to people on the ground. And, you know, uh, at, at the end of uh, October, um, the Chinese ambassador to Kenya in effect threatened a trade war with Kenya. Uh, this came, as you say, after uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta uh, had made a number of statements in China, but also in, um, in Kenya itself. And the government of Kenya announced that it would be halting imports of Chinese tilapia, which are believed, um, or they claim, are flooding the market and harming the local fishing industry. Because of this um, uh, threat to halt imports of Chinese tilapia and other fish products, the Chinese government, through the Chinese embassy in Kenya, responded angrily, saying it would impose its own sanctions on Kenya, similar to the kind of trade war that's going on currently between the United States and China. It also warned the Kenyans that it would pull uh, phase two funding for the Standard Gorge Railway or the SGR, which is this railway connecting uh, Nairobi Mombasa. But, uh, and also just to add that project, by the way, is the most significant infrastructure project in Kenya it's worth 3.2 billion and it's the most important project in Kenya since it gained independence from Britain. But a few days uh, after I arrived in Nairobi, the rhetoric seemed to have cooled down and uh, the tilapia pan uh, went ahead or was planned to go ahead in January. Uh, and China in some ways walked back on its threat to 
create this kind of trade war, saying that uh, Kenya's um, relationship with China would not be impacted by the by the ban, and that it would continue to foot the bill for the S uh, for the SGR. Yeah, it's interesting because that was really one of the first instances that I've seen where China really threatened to leverage its disproportionate size and power over African states. And Kenya, mind you, is much larger than many other African states, Botswana, Ghana, uh, Rwanda, and others. So imagine if other smaller states want to deviate from Chinese policy. Now the Chinese appear to be willing to use the tool of sanctions and, and threatening to withhold uh, infrastructure funding. Uh, and that was interesting. So that was a turn. That was definitely something new we haven't seen before. Um, but let me, let me now kind of step back. I'm here in China. I'm going to channel a little bit of the Chinese point of view here, okay? And again, I'm not suggesting that this is my point of view, but this is certainly how a lot of Chinese people think. So, Ismael, you, let's put you as the Kenyan, the Kenyan public here. You don't want us? Okay? You don't want our money? Fine. You know what? There are a lot of people along the Belt and Road that want our money. There are a lot of, we're doing more trade with South America. We're doing more trade now with the Middle East. You know, our Southeast Asian trade eclipses anything in Africa. At the end of the day, you know, Africa, it's really a political play now. So we really can spend maybe a tenth of what we're spending today in Africa and still get pretty much the same dividends. Oh, and by the way, good luck in going back to the other benefactors that you used to have who financed you know, infrastructure because they didn't really do a very good job for you. And I want to channel a tweet that came from Onye Nkuzi, who is a very popular Nigerian economics commentator on Twitter. And he wrote the other day, who else is going to invest in infrastructure in low-income nations like Sierra Leone apart from China? Let us stop fooling ourselves. Nobody in Wall Street believes Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone is a good investment opportunity under any condition. So, yeah, you want to gripe and you want to complain? Fine. What's going to happen when the Chinese leave and they take their infrastructure money with them? Corrupt as it may be, you're getting roads built, you're getting subways built, you're getting all of this infrastructure actually done. And as Cobus has pointed out in the past, building infrastructure is a super messy thing. If you're going to tell me that the New York in the subway and the London subway weren't built without corruption, I tell you that you're lying. So... Let me put that out there for you, Ismail, to kind of respond to. Again, I want to put a disclaimer. That's not how I feel necessarily, but that is how a lot of people over here feel, which is like, you know what? Forget you guys. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, before I I uh, I, I take, uh, um, you, you know, uh, well, before I comment on this, uh, Eric, I'd like to also just add uh, in the context of Kenya that um, – you know, Kenya, for example, owes 72% of its bilateral debts to China. Um, and following the events with the Chinese embassy, you know, there was a lot of criticism from the uh, Kenyan civil society, not only because of this threat of trade war, but because um, uh, in September, uh, Kenyan authorities had arrested a Chinese businessman after a video surfaced online in which he was mocking the president in quite racist terms. And the country's sort of social media was a buzz with anger, in a sense. But to come back to your point, I think there is truth that uh, China, uh, you know, is the only player when it comes to infrastructure projects, for example, in Africa. The Western nations, former colonial powers like France and Britain and, you know, the United States can't really muster the will the desire or the capacity to really offer these kind of infrastructure 
projects and uh, give these kind of loans, whether it's in Sierra Leone or Zambia or Ethiopia or indeed in Kenya. Um, and I think there is truth that uh, to that claim that, you know, China is investing in these nations um because there is obviously some goodwill, but equally, I think what's changed this year is that people have began to understand this relationship at a deeper level. They began to kind of pick apart those kind of calculations, those simple sort of binary kind of calculation of China brings in the loans and the capital and Africa offers the resources. I think that was the relationship in the early 2000s. I think something has changed as we've entered, you know, this decade. And what Kenya shows is really it's an interesting test ground, not only because you've had its leadership under President Kenyatta, who, by the way, is himself not free of corruption. And many people in Kenya are very critical of his leadership, but certainly at the leadership level, but also at the society level, because Kenya is so dynamic, because we've got really thriving media and civil society, have begun to ask these kinds of questions. Is China too powerful? Um, what's the value of the uh, Chinese investments? Uh, are they overpriced or not? You know, these are questions. And I think in a sense, actually, um, this is a pretty healthy place to be because I think what's changing is that uh, Western nations, which, by the way, if you go back two decades ago, you know, Western Western nations involvement in Africa would have drawn similar criticism historically for very good reason because of the horrendous legacies of colonialism. Uh, but this is what's changing, uh, Eric, is that China is now the player. Um, and, um, you know, whether it's uh, politicians like Kenyatta, whether it's civil society actors are now standing up, um, sometimes for the right reasons, often also because they are playing to domestic political considerations. So I think what you're seeing is the kind of success that China's role has brought out um, across Africa. But also, I think we've reached an important moment in 2018 where China's become that kind of superpower that you can, you know, criticize, that you can um, begin to kind of question. And you're not just seeing this in Kenya, you're seeing this right across the continent. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. But Kobus, let me ask you a quick question very quickly on this. Is that are people taking out their frustrations on the Chinese because they can't take the frustrations out on their own leaders? So in Zambia, for example, Edgar Lungo is now becoming increasingly authoritarian. He's cracking down. In Kenya, people are frustrated because of Kenyatta's increase in taxes and whatnot. And they feel that their voices are not being heard by domestic politicians. So China then becomes a weapon that's used in domestic political debates. We saw this in, in Zambia as well, where the domestic uh, a political party leader was brought in for questioning, allegedly for using Chinese uh, and, and kind of saying, you know, 
defaming the Chinese and saying kind of things that were not true. And it does highlight how the Chinese as a whole are becoming a domestic political issue. And in so many ways, the Chinese make the perfect enemy because they don't respond, they don't engage. So just like Michael Sada in Zambia did 20 years ago, and he bashed on the Chinese with no real apparent consequence, uh, other politicians are doing that as well. What's your take on that, Kobus? I think to a certain extent, yeah, I agree with you that, that China makes a, a kind of a perfect other. Um, and, you know, so and, and, and we shouldn't underestimate uh, the role of simple xenophobia and racism in, in this, you know, this calculus. Uh, um, you know, you know, Chinese people are, you know, so racially stand out on the landscape. You know, they, they, um, so, so, so the otherness is, is kind of multiplied um, in, in a way that I think is sometimes ex- extremely problematic. Um, at the same time, of course, you know, Africa, for all of the problems that the West caused in Africa historically, you know, I think Africans to a large extent are more used to the presence of the West in Africa. So it's not a surprise to realize that, that you know, there's a big British involvement in Kenya, for example. Um, you know, whereas you can, someone could still be surprised that there's a big Chinese involvement. Um, so, so I think all of those things play together. Um, you know, I, I would return to, to a point that we touched on earlier, which is that I think to a large extent, there is there's a fundamental weakness, I think, a, a weakness of of um, of legitimacy in in a lot of a lot of African governments, um, which makes it easy to use Chinese to undercut them. Um, you know, so there's a kind of a lack of trust between between the population and many African governments um, that just makes distrusting them a kind of a logical response. And so that taints then all of the external relationships as well. You know, so it's like, oh, see, of course they would be hanging out with the Chinese because we all know that they are corrupt and therefore the Chinese must also be corrupt. You know, so, so it's a little, it's a kind of a little bit of a chicken and egg situation in, in terms of the rhetoric. Um, which, which I think you know, which, which I'm kind of wondering is how you know, like whether this is where the the rela- you know, whether the relationship hits a wall there, or whether there's a way for both China and Africa to kind of to move beyond that point, um, and what it would take for the Chinese to to break through that barrier. Um, Ismail, do you have any thoughts about that? Like, how, how should the Chinese engage with, with African civil society to, to state their position more clearly if they, if they want to? Um, I, I, I'll come back to that very uh, quickly, shortly. But actually, I want to come back to a, a previous point we were discussing, which is also the reality. So, for example, in Zambia, I think The Economist magazine said in September that China probably holds only about a quarter of Zambia's external debt. Uh, and the reality is that Zambia already has quite a few problems, uh, including accessions of corruption by its own government, which has actually forced uh, Western aid donors like the UK and I believe Ireland and others to actually cut uh, funding to uh, Zambia. So the situation is that you have um, somewhere like Zambia where China's involvement is important, but not as important as other nations. And in fact, arguably, Zambia's uh, current predicament with its debt crisis is because of decades of policies pursued by Western powers through the IMF and World Bank and other kind of loan and international sort of arrangements. And 
Then, on the other hand, you have protests that have been happening in recent months in Lusaka, in the capital of Zambia and other parts, where people have been, you know, holding banners saying no to China. Even one protester, you know, held a sign saying China equals Hitler. So there is pretty extreme rhetoric. Um, and I think, just to answer your question, Kobus, I think, uh, unfortunately, perhaps what's happening, what's happening um, in some parts of Africa is that China has sort of replaced, say, a Western power or even perhaps the IMF, etc., as the lightning rod for popular discontent. And often that lightning rod can mask the fact that African governments are sometimes, uh, often in many cases, actually, responsible for some of these issues, you know, the corruption and so on. Um, and if you look at a place like Nigeria, for example, it's been, you know, pretty corrupt um, with things like the Chinese investments, but that's in part because of Nigeria's long history of corruption. Now, how does China sort of wade through all of that? I think one of the things for China is that, unfortunately, the history has been in recent years that it's dealt largely with elites. It's dealt with uh, state elites, it's dealt with governments. And that message has to change. And I saw that, um, you know, only at the beginning of the year in in, in Senegal and the last time I was on the programme discussing uh, China's... um, increasing investments in the Confucius Institute. There are now over 50 Confucius Institutes across Africa and really trying to propagate Chinese culture and trying to get the Chinese to know the Africans, you know, to know the Zambians, to know the Kenyans. I think that's one area in which China can really begin to build bridges that just go beyond loans and infrastructure projects. The other th- trouble is also, Cobus, is that the relationship between African Africans and Chinese isn't as warm as it should be. Um, and I've heard this many a times where I've been in Dakar, in Johannesburg, in Nairobi, is that Africans uh, say that, you know, uh, Chinese uh, contractors, Chinese officials, Chinese business people, uh, you know, the more than one million Chinese people who now live in Africa, they don't often integrate, they don't often intermix with local communities. And I think that is an opportunity missed because what happens is that the state level, China gets to know what's going on, but often misses what's really going on um, within the society. And I think a way that China can sort of counteract these kind of popular, you know, sort of discontent and protests and so on is to really take its message out there and really to speak to people beyond just governments, to really engage with civil society actors uh, and talk to them about what China is doing and also engage people at a human level. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty tall order, given the fact that the Chinese really don't have a lot of experience in doing that. That's just not how Chinese society here works. And it's really not how they operate anywhere else in the world. So if that's where our hope is, I'm not so sure um, we're going to see a lot of results. That being said, remember that the Chinese have been navigating hostile politics in the United States for decades. Uh, They managed the transition from Michael Sada as critic into president very, very well. Uh, They definitely managed the transition in Zimbabwe, uh, the political power change there, where a lot of people thought that they were going to be uh, aligned with Robert Mugabe and afterwards they would be maligned. But at the end, they, they They handled that and their diplomacy was very, very sophisticated. So there is an opportunity here for the Chinese to show some some subtlety. Um, We just it'll be interesting to see. Everybody, if you are interested in this turning point that we are, you must read China and Africa, an increasingly uneasy marriage of interests. Just look up Ismail Anahashi, or you can go to the national website. It's under the opinion columns on November 19th, 2018. 
Uh, and the subtitle is, while governments are happy to be wooed by multi-billion dollar loans and large-scale infrastructure investment, feelings on the street are less warm. And that is definitely a case. So no matter what side of the issue you are on, you can feel that something is changing. Aina Hashi, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure to reconnect with you again. Congratulations on another excellent piece of reporting. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way they can stay in touch with you? Well, thank you so much, Eric and Cobb. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. Um, if you want to follow me, please uh, follow me at Ismail Inache at, uh, at, on Twitter. Uh, also, my web- website is ismailinache.com. And I look forward to hopefully speaking to you all very soon. Thank you. And we will put your Twitter handle in our show notes so everybody can follow you there. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time for us. Thank you so much. Take care. Gobis, Ismail's report really brings up a, a, a very interesting point about where we are. We do It does feel like we are at a turning point, but I think it's also important to step back and see the broader context here. Uh, China's not only facing these difficulties in Africa, it's facing them in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, in Pakistan in particular, certainly with the United States. There's even reports in Eastern Europe now that there's some pushback against the Chinese. Uh, Kazakhstan had some pushback as well. So this is a global phenomenon that we're seeing. And, and the Chinese are under, they have a challenge on their hands, there's no doubt. But I also want us to step back a little bit and see a different picture in Africa. And Ismail brought this up because there is a moment here where I think the, the West comes in and says, you see, you kind of got in bed with the wrong guys. And, you know, let's remember that of all the debt payments that, the, that, that Africans pay, 55% go to euro bondholders and to private investors. 17% go to the Chinese. That's almost three times as much interest in terms of interest payments that's going to Europeans and Western banks and Western debt holders than it is to the Chinese. And so there is an opportunity here to get carried away with the Chinese and to see, you know, these are some isolated incidences and that is then kind of, you know, sweeping over the entire continent when in fact there's a very, very complex and mixed story here. I will say the headlines are bad and getting worse, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the reality on the ground as a whole. What interests me is where this is going in the larger story of Africa, you know, because one of one of the things that the Chinese achieved was that they made it clear that it's possible to to do business in Africa, that Africa isn't this, this, you know, that doing business isn't just like throwing your money into a black hole, that it's essentially that you can you can pitch a project, complete the project, finish the project and be done, you know, that 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 can happen successfully. And I think, you know, that opened the door to a lot of other emerging partners um, in Africa and, and in Kenya's neighborhood, particularly, um, you know, players like Turkey, like the United Arab Emirates are, are investing heavily in East Africa. Um, so, you know, and it seems like for each external partner that Africa gains, and it's particularly in, in kind of very, very large kind of um, partnerships, there is this kind of moment where Africa has a, a kind of a moment where they start doubting whether this is actually so good for the continent um, and whether there's going to be a replay of its disastrous relationship with the West. Um, so, you know, that I, I'm very interested to see where it's going because, um, you know, whether all of these like partners like India or Iran or who is also going to have face that moment, you know, in the partnership with Africa. And then also what it then says about the oldest of these relationships, which is with the West, which, you know, all of the criticism of China 
um, I think is frequently read in the West as as this kind of implicit, uh, you know, kind of re- implicit confirmation of the bet the the that the relationship with the West is actually better than the relationship with China. You know, so there's like anti-China protests, and then you know, it's all of this kind of like somewhat approving reporting about that in you know in in the Western press, going like, oh, see, yes, you know, they're finally seeing the problem with China. I think what is frequently not, I think, made clear is that the relationship with the West, I think, is so toxic that it doesn't even need to be said, you know? You don't, no one is, no one is, no one in Africa is surprised that the West is terrible, you know, in in terms of its (laughs) relationships with Africa. They're like, you know, that kind of goes without saying. Um, You know, the the relationship with China is still new, so there's still something to be surprised about there, you know? Um, There's nothing to be surprised about in the relationship with, like, France, for example. Um, You know, so, so that's what I'm wondering is, is, a, the, you know, if the relationship with China sours, that doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship with, with the West is warming up. Um, and, and then also whether that means that if that is, if indicates a kind of a pattern that Africa is going to have to face in its relationship with, with the rest of the world. Is there always going to be a moment of exploitation or is, it, is, there always, is there a way for Africa to move towards partnerships that aren't as destructive? So these are very, very complex issues. At this point, there is no right or wrong because you can see this issue from so many sides. Kobus and I have these regular discussions with a lot of the folks who follow us and write us, and some people think that we are totally wrong, and some people say that we're totally right. And of course, it's hard to tell because Africa is so large, China is so large, and depending on what side of the issue you're standing on, uh, you can see it in so many different ways. It's incidentally going to be one of the topics that if you're in Shanghai on December 5th uh, from 7 to 9 p.m., come by the Punchline Cafe. Cafe on uh, West Nanjing Road. Kobus, I'm doing a little plug here for myself. Uh, I'll be giving a talk at the Royal Asiatic Society, and we're going to have drinks afterwards. So it'll be a very, very lively discussion on China-Africa relations in an age of uncertainty. And certainly today's show with Ismail uh, highlights that. And these are some of the topics we're going to talk in person. Uh, More importantly, I love to meet everybody. So if you want to come by, and I love seeing people who listen to the show. Uh, So if you're in Shanghai and you'd like to meet me and you'd like to come by and listen and join other people who are interested in China-Africa issues, uh, do come by the Punchline Cafe on Wednesday, December 5th from 7 to 9 p.m. Kobus, too bad you're not in town. It would be fun for both of us to do that. that. So next time you and I are in the same town together, we said we're going to do a meetup. And we're going to record a live show. So that is going to be either in Johannesburg or, so, or, or Shanghai or somewhere in between. But that is our goal. Uh, so um, that may be a while, given that our, our travel schedules don't always align. So we'll, uh, we'll, but we'll let everybody know when that happens. Uh, so that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Copus and I will be back with another edition of the program next week. And as we close out the year, we're going to start looking back on some of the year and review issues and kind of take a look at what we expect coming up in the year ahead in 2019. So until then, thank you so much for listening. I'm Eric Olander for Copas van Staden. We'll see you next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.